Hey y'all, this is Marcus King and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcast presents Deeper Digs with host and rock and roll archaeologist Christian Swain. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Guilty as charged, but damn it, it ain't right. There is someone else controlling me, diggers. Welcome to the new Deeper Digs. Yeah, uh, Ian Rock is being retired. Of course, the rock and roll isn't, uh, but we just, uh, we felt uh, uh, we're more than just rock these days, but uh, all music, and uh, and wanted to reflect that. Uh, Plus, it's just a chance to be more open with our guests, Uh, and our other explorations. Uh, I can guarantee you it will still be all music all the time and how the music interacts with culture at large and technology, both past and present. Um, As we like to say, uh, they are not just intertwined, they are each other. So says Marshall McLuhan, at least, uh, who we are big fans of around here. So really, not much change, uh, but the name reflects a bigger canvas uh, we found ourselves in. So I hope you all agree. Okay, okay, announcements, announcements, announcements. Let's get through this real quick. First, yes, for those of you waiting, episode 19, titled 1969 Part 2, is now in production. So only a few more weeks to wait now, diggers. Uh, Hopefully you will be pleased uh, with how we are ending the 1960s in our rock and roll archaeology. We have one more planned uh, after this to complete what we are calling uh, Volume 1, Rock and Roll Archaeology, 1945 to 1970. So, so sorry it's taken so long, but we've been sidelined a little bit. Um, yes, partly due to uh, the COVID-19 issues. Uh, and of course, you know where to get all your COVID-19 uh, information. Uh, that is cdc.gov or who.int. Um, but uh, you know, we 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 were hit uh, with uh, with the stay at home um, and self isolation uh, orders, and that uh, you know slowed production down a little bit. Um, uh, so sorry about that. But but really, <laughs> really, uh, the delay more than anything um, beyond our usual careful research and long writing process is that uh, the RNRA has been picked up by Open Gate Entertainment to hopefully be made into a documentary series. Uh, If you listened to last week's episode until the end, uh, I snuck in a a little preview announcement uh, for that. So yes, we are hopefully going to make the RNRA into a documentary that you will hopefully soon get to see. So how can you help? Well, you know, like we say around here, tell a friend, tell 1,000 friends. While we all know the subject and the presentation is important and needs to be told on television, how the game works is by being a pretty big deal in another medium. Um, You know, think uh, comic books as original properties that are almost guaranteed a success at the box office because the studio knows the number of fans. So the more fans we have in the podcast of rock and roll archaeology uh the more likely that uh, one of the streaming services will say we will give you 
uh, all the money that you need uh, to make this. Um, so if you, too, want to see the RNRA in a long-form television documentary, tell as many fans and friends that, uh, that you can. All right, uh, let me remind you to think about adamandeve.com for uh, the nights you get the love light turned on. You all know uh, we got you on the rock and roll, uh, and now we have uh, an answer for the sex part, too. Uh, the drugs you're just going to have to figure out on your own. Well, at least until we start running weed ads. Um, and then, oh boy, it'll be sex, drugs, and rock and roll all the time, right? Go to adamandeve.com and use the DIGS, D-I-G-S, code for a ton of free stuff, including free shipping. Okay, that's it. Let's get to a very special show. do we have a good one for you and for the first time we are going to have two shows that make up a, a little series here i got the immense pleasure of speaking to two great directors about two great documentaries on two incredible musical moments or excuse me movements that uh, happened at almost the same time in the same town uh my town here of san francisco well, the Bay Area as a whole. Uh, next week, we will be speaking with Corbett Redford, the director of Turn It Around, the story of East Bay Punk. So please come on back for the second part of this little experiment of mine here. Um, but this week, it's all about the thrash metal scene that grew out of the Bay Area in the very early 1980s. And that means a great discussion with director Adam Dubin to discuss his just-released documentary called Murder in the Front Row, the San Francisco Bay Area thrash metal scene. I can tell you how crazy this is to have two musical genres collide and that I get to share it with you diggers. While at the same time, uh, they may have seemed miles apart musically, um... Now, looking back, you can see far more similarities than differences. You know, kids will be kids, and they just want to belong to a tribe. Uh, one likes chocolate, the other peanut butter, and of course, sometimes they actually come together for a tasty treat. Yes, right? Yes, you know what I'm talking about. And guess what? That happened even at the time, uh, as we will discover. Uh, in fact, several faces show up in both films. Uh, Kirk Hammett and Robert Trujillo are, are perfect examples. Uh, now, both in Metallica, Kirk is truly one of the fountainheads of thrash by putting together Exodus. And Robert came from Suicidal Tendencies, who were big in the punk scene. 
Uh, in fact, they both played on the same bill uh, a few times um, back in the day before they uh, each uh, really got famous, and as we shall hear uh, uh, Adam talk about. Murder in the Front Row is a film based on a book written back in 2012 by Brian Liu and Harold Oi Moen, both of whom make appearances in the film along with just about everyone else who was on the scene when it was actually being created. It is directed by our guest today, Adam Dubin, who does a great job in a tight 93 minutes, getting us the details of the bands, the chronological timeline, and most importantly, all the people in this local scene, as it goes from just a few people to becoming a global musical phenomenon. Adam is no stranger to the music scene. He happens to be the guy who was roommate at NYU in the 1980s with a certain Rick Rubin. You know, the guy who created Def Jam Records and is now the guru of rock and roll. Yeah, we talk all about that as well. Uh, Adam was in the film department, and when Rubin needed a quick video for this group of white rappers with a license to ill on his new Def Jam label for a song that was blowing up the charts, Adam, along with mutual friend Rick Manello, were tapped to direct it. Um, the video, uh, if you haven't guessed already, uh, was Fight for Your Right to Party by the Beastie Boys, uh, one of the greatest music videos produced in the MTV era, I might add. Uh, they also directed No Sleep Till Brooklyn. Adam went on to work with Metallica on their 1992 two-part documentary of the Black Album, A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica. He also directed the great Nothing Else Matters video for them, too. Uh, and he also worked with them on Hit the Lights, uh, the making of Metallica through the Never, and even accompanied them uh, to Antarctica to film the Freeze Em All documentary. We, we talk all about that. Uh, long and short is Adam was primed to take on the Bay Area thrash metal scene where it all started. He's also done numerous concert films for big-time comedians like Louis Black and Jim Brewer, uh, as well as many other music videos. So let's get to it. Diggers, I give you... Adam Dubin. Adam Dubin, welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy yeah, to be horns. here. Murder uh, in the yeah. Front Row. Yeah, we yeah. are talking about Murder in the Front Row. Uh, an interesting title, by the way. Uh, and we'll get into that. But but first, I, I got to, you know, we, we, we got to get your CV. You know, what, what gave you the right to, to, to make a movie about thrash metal in the Bay Area? So let's let's hear your story. I believe you studied film at NYU, right? Yeah, I did. I studied film at NYU and, uh, and you know, just began making films. But I always wanted to make films that, you know, kind of had to do with rock and roll and with, with music or in some way. I, um, when I 
got into NYU to make films, uh, MTV was maybe a year old at that point. So it was sort of like this new genre, this new thing was coming up. And uh, I mean, I was very inspired by the rock films of the 70s, which I would see here and again, maybe on PBS or something. How many times have you seen Song Remains the Same? Yeah, enough. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's a great answer. (laughs) It's great. No, I mean, you know, certainly the music portions are what stand out. It's it's a a record of Led Zeppelin in in their in their peak moment. They're hiding, but yeah, which I I love. They're one of my favorite bands. And um, but I, you know, as I as I go along, I I really was inspired to like do something. I didn't know what it was exactly. I mean, I certainly thought, oh, I'll make some music videos. It's not that I liked every music video. I just liked that there was this like format. This format, like, yeah, this new books. sort of format had it taken off and yeah. exploded, you know, by then, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. It was starting to, yeah, it was definitely changing. It changed everything in music, of course, how you promote things. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, um, I mean, I could talk about when I got out of uh, college, but also there was, of course, how I got to murder in the front row. So I don't know which. Oh no, no, no! We'll, we'll get to murder okay. in the front. We got plenty of time. What else are we going to do? We're all stuck in quarantine, right? So We're all here. So uh, yeah, um, you know, uh, I guess the the next question should be: uh, You kind of made a couple of music videos yourself, didn't you? Yeah. So as I'm when I'm at NYU, and this is a total happenstance of fate, there's no, there's no yeah. rhyme or reason about it. But for one year, my roommate uh, happened to be a guy, he was like, something to do with music, he said. And I was like, well, what's that? And he's like, he happened to be a guy named Rick Rubin. And <laughs> yeah. it's, yeah, and so it's Rubin and Dubin. Which the is guru, uh, as we know him now. Right? <laughs> right, exactly. Right, but he wasn't that dude yet. He was not with the, the, the long flowing beard and the, and, and, and all the, the kind of, you know, the, the, the spiritual ways. I mean, you know, he his spirituality extended to he was like more into like doing um, uh, punk shows and like, but always in an artistic way. I mean, it was like he always like kind of had this idea about, you know, what what could be interesting about this in a kind of larger way. Yeah. So I learned a lot from him, and of course yeah. he was he wasn't even making rap records just yet. He was making punk records, yeah. but the idea was he was very. Um, I mean, as a 19-year-old, he was very self-assured and just like not afraid to fail. It was actually a very good model for me. And and uh, he just would go, you know, and and create stuff. So I kind of went to school and learned a lot from him, and that was that was great. So so for a year, you lived in the room where Def Jam Records was born. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really pretty amazing. But at the time, it it was like you know, it's like anything. You don't know anything amazing is happening. Your roommates are <laughs> no, no. doing something. Yeah, that's and, not how history it seems works. Yeah, it's after the fact that you're right, going, exactly. oh shit, look you at me. You don't always know the moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I knew it late, later on. I mean, I knew I knew some stuff later on, but I didn't know um, at the time. And so uh, it was just kind of cool. I mean, you know, Rick was making punk records when I knew him, but he was interested in hip hop. We all were. And, uh, and it just became something that we, you know, I just kind of, kind of followed him and learned a great deal from him. He was the, the, a very, um, you know, kind of self-assured 19 year old, somebody who was, um, not afraid to fail. If I had to pick one characteristic about Rick Rubin at that time, mm-hmm. it was like, he just was like, he'd give it a shot. I mean, he just was like, I would think like, you can't like make your own records. How do you make your own records? He because he would he would figure out. And he just wasn't afraid to, to you know, kind of take a risk and 
and and just you know learn and fail and just keep going. So I, I believe that um, is the anyway, one and only way to actually learn something is to try it and uh, fail and try it until yeah. you get it right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But you know, th there's also you know a lot of times when you're younger, you're like you're like uh, you're afraid even to take that risk, and and uh, right. he wasn't, and he was you know he'd kind of like lead us. I mean, he had very distinct opinions, very self-assured opinions about you know what types of music and what was good and what i always remember is his record collection you know he, he he i came into the dorm room he had two turntables nobody had this back then and and nothing was pre-wired back then i mean this all came later with djs but he he had all the components and he had two turntables and a mixer but you had to wire all this stuff together yourself and he i asked him why he had two copies of all these records because he would have these bins of records they were actually milk crates and he would have like two copies of Aerosmith and two copies. And he either had like kind of very heavy metal and punk or he had hip hop or rap as it was probably known more. And I said, why do you have two of these things? He's like, so that's how the DJs mix it back and forth and keep the beat going. Yeah. And so it was, you know, he, but he was, he kind of knew what he liked. And of course he had a long list of things he didn't like. And, uh, you know, some, a good deal of that was stuff I liked. So it was like, you know, we, we listened to what, what he liked, but I, but I actually was learning. It was like, I, I came to like what he was interested in a great deal because it was, it was like, I had grown up on, on basically normal, you know, radio that you get as a kid on Long Island. Um, you didn't get so much of the good, uh, college stations. You got like, you know, whatever the, the biggest rock station was in New York. And that, that all started to change once I got to NYU. And you just start hearing the, if not hearing the music, you hear music on the street. I mean, you just hear everything. So yeah, yeah. Uh, San Francisco, I think, is very much like that. The people I talked to from Murder in the Front Row would describe Telegraph Avenue in a very similar way, which yeah. is in San Francisco. It's East yeah. Bay. But yes, the same yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So uh, after you get out of school, uh, Rick taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, I got this new uh, three-piece sort of hip-hop rock uh, hybrid, uh, and they need a video. <laughs> it wasn't even quite like that. It was um, – we all knew the Beastie Boys. I mean, growing up there, I'd been seeing them as a punk band, so it, it was sort of like – they were around and then when they started doing hip hop, it was like, oh, that's kind of cool. But ultimately what, what was the deciding factor of, of me doing any kind of music video with them was that it needed to be done quickly. And Ruben was working on, he was actually in the middle of directing Tougher Than Leather, the Run DMC movie, which I was working on also for him. And suddenly the song Fight Fire to Party started to catch fire in these different radio markets. And so what happened was they needed a video. The, the, the you know, um, guys from MTV came down and they were like, we need a video in the next two weeks. And we're holding a place in heavy rotation. And if anybody knows anything about MTV in those days, the most coveted thing on earth in any kind of promotion was a place on heavy rotation. And so it had to be done quickly. Ruben actually didn't tap me on the shoulder. He tapped um, our friend and colleague, Rick Manello, who was, this, if anybody was a guru of film, it was Rick Manello. He was, Manello was about 10 years older than us. Um, he almost looked the part of the guru. I mean, he sort of had this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, one of those guys, right. right. Uh, the Orson film Wells nerd. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, kind, of, kind of like a Tarantino-esque yeah. kind of guy, right? He knows everything about every yeah, movie, the only right? 
That's exactly right. Tarantino's the only other guy I've heard speak like Manello did. So he taps Manello and he goes, I need this video. I need it done in two weeks. Manello was kind of scary. He'd never directed before. He'd written a number of things. And so he turned to me and I was fully ready to direct. I couldn't wait to direct something. Right. And so we kind of split up the task and said, all right, we'll co-direct. The Beastie Boys were happy with that. They knew me just as much as they knew Rick. But Manello was like the guru. I mean, they wanted his knowledge in it. And literally, we, we, we walked off to um, Mike D's apartment off of Hudson Street and just uh, kind of uh, you know, re recreated, recreated uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, right? <laughs> that, that, was, that was the breakthrough idea. It, we, we were all sitting around for like, like a couple hours of, of like, what can we do? And it, and it had these, these sort of restrictions on it. It had to be doable in like one location. It had to be done for you know as little money as we could do it for it had to be we had to be able to just get our friends and use everything that we had there was no money whatever money there was would literally buy the film and pay like a cameraman to shoot it <laughs> right, and right, right. and so it was it was that limited so manello's the guy who you know it was kind of like well could we throw a party it was like these ideas were coming around because it was all taking place in one space and then manello's the one with the breakthrough idea he he was the one who said it should be like the party scene in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um, but Breakfast at Tiffany's, a great uh, Blake Edwards directed movie with yeah. Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. And yeah. it George and Papard, as its centerpiece, right, right. George yeah. Papard, just yeah. great. Yeah. And as a centerpiece, it has this party scene in it, which is, <laughs> is actually an excuse for Blake Edwards to just do a series of gags. Yeah. Uh, I'm told the party's not even in the book, or, or if it is, it's not really what that is. This is Blake Edwards who of course went on to direct the, the Pink Panther movies. And, you know, it was just a series of, of, you know, crazy gags and that's what he did his best. And so we were like, well, yeah, we could do that. And, yeah. and literally it took off from there and the rest, as they say, is history. Cause that was something we could do in one location, get all our friends, write a series of gags and just shoot it. And that's what we did for two days. And, you know, you don't even think you're making history. Literally, the only thing in your head is we have to get all this done in two days. In this right, right, right. Yeah. This is what we got. Yeah. And, and just so so everybody knows what we're talking about, if you haven't guessed so far, it's the video for Fight for Your Right to Party. Right. And so one interesting point about it is this, is that it was really a lot of fun. I mean, it was, you yeah. know, the strain is, of course, getting it all done, but as I look back, it was it was peaceful. Everybody cooperated. We got it done. It was the Beastie Boys, their friends, the guys from Murphy's Law, great you know hardcore band that a lot of people you know they're that's somewhat well known. Yeah. And um, and just everybody, their friends and everybody, just pulling together to get it done. I mean, yeah. Rick Rubin Rick's came down to one yeah. of the days. <laughs> yeah, and and he came down as like he was on a that was a relief day from him from the the, the Tough and the Leather movie. Um, Russell wasn't in it, but he came down. Uh, but you know, kind of all the people just hanging out now as to give you a contrast, two months later, we shot the video kind of me and Manello again, working again for no sleep till Brooklyn. Yeah. Another fucking classic. Right. Right. And we were trying to kind of continue the magic, but in a sense, what happened was in, in fight fear at the party, nobody bothered us by the time we got to, to um, no, yeah. no sleep till Brooklyn. Just two months later, suddenly there was a bunch of suits that showed up from yeah. CBS Records, Epic Records, and notes were coming up to me and Manello. Could Adrock do more of this? Could this guy do more? It wasn't a ton. And and to be sure, to be certain, Ruben was definitely running interference for us. He was not 
pleased. But that just shows you the importance that suddenly the Beastie Boys, who had the number one album in the country. Right, right. You know, how things show changed so quickly yeah. uh, in that and short period of time. Freedoms. Yeah, exactly. Uh, before we move on, we got to say uh, uh, R.I.P. Adam Yock. Um, you know, that's, yeah, that's sad that's that those wonderful. days are they are gone. So now, but, you know, moving on and, and yeah, you've done a lot of uh, uh, stuff and, you know, we could go down uh, the, the comedy uh, rabbit hole, but we're going to save that for another day uh, because we got to get to uh, to this movie that uh, is out uh, recently, Murder in the Front Row. And so before that, I think you you actually uh, uh, worked with Metallica and you directed another uh, legendary um, uh, video, and that's Nothing Else Matters, right? Yeah. So that happened. So after, you know, the Beastie Boys and stuff, I'm, I'm just bopping around, you know, directing uh, wherever I can or just doing film work, not not necessarily directing. I, I, for instance, I worked for um, uh, I did film work on like a bunch of Danzig uh, video work and stuff. I never directed for, for Glenn, but, you know, kind of was working around. So I was, I was always in like the, the heavy metal side of the street in a sense. It really was the hip hop thing kind of. Uh, went its own way in so many directions at once that that there were directors that just specialized in that. But I, I got into heavy metal, um, and along the way, I finally get a, a call. I had management at the time for Propaganda Films, and and it was very kind of um, uh, you know kind of uncertain as to whether it would happen. It was like Metallica is going into the studio to to record their next album, which would be the album that the follows album. Uh, and just no, the album that follows Injustice for All. So they were going to record the next thing. Didn't have a name yet. Nobody knew what it was. Mm -hmm. um, and it was like, they think there may be a chance to shoot some documentary of this. Do you want to do it? I'm like, well, hell yeah, I'll do something. But it was like, kind of, you got to earn your stripes. And so I, I go in there and it was very on the fence. It was pretty clear. Lars wanted to film if we could. James was not into it. And I just said, well, let me film a little bit. And if you like what I'm doing, I'll stick around, I guess. And if you don't, uh, you could, you know, send me packing. Now, by this point, I, I didn't know them at all, but they kind of were like, well, we'll see if this works. Anyway, I started filming and I guess I, I, I knew enough to like be the fly on the wall and stay the hell out of the way of what was really going on there. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, they, I just kind of, at a certain point, I became part of the woodwork and they kind of forgot about me being there, which was great. And I was able to document something. Now, the something that I started to document became the Black Album. And what I was starting to hear in the studio, as, as I said, when I was with Rick Rubin, I didn't know like what was happening was anything important. But when I was in the studio hearing the Black Album come together, or, or rather when I'm hearing songs like Enter Sandman and Nothing Else Matters and The Unforgiven, <laughs> I was like... Uh -oh. oh my God! <laughs> yeah. I, it wasn't just like so. You oh, you really recognize the moment. You can you yeah. unlike uh, like we just talked about with Def Jam happening in your dorm room. This one, right. you're like, oh shit! I think I'm watching history in, in in the making right here. Yeah, I had more of a sense that I was you know I put things in terms of Led Zeppelin, and I just had a sense that I'm in the studio while they're making like either Zeppelin Four or like physical graffiti or something. You know yeah. that it's like kind of a next level of what this band is capable of, but on, on a, you know, just the songs and, and the way they were coming out was incredible to hear that stuff come together was just awesome. So yeah, I really did have a sense that like, okay, this is something, this is not just the next album 
for this band. This is like the next album for everybody, you know? It was just amazing. Here's a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit. And now back to the program. Yeah, it's a game changer. It's a game changer, especially when it came out. You know, I mean, it was it, that. Uh, there's a couple of albums that kind of fit right in mm -hmm. here where music is is literally changing from the 80s to the 90s. We're, we're getting yes. rid of the 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 hair metal and uh, all of that craziness mm -hmm. that went along with that. And we're getting uh, heavier and, and deeper. Uh, you know, the, the Black Album is uh, one of those, uh, you know, like Appetite for Destruction uh, fits into that category. Uh, you know, Nevermind, yep. obviously. Uh, you know, and these, yep. these the, the, and I think the, those are three, in the rock uh, world, those three albums, you know, right around the same period that literally decimate what uh, had come before it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It, it, right. It changed. There was the, the day after that came out, something yeah. was different yeah. in, in terms of music and things were, you know, suddenly in a way derivative of that because they, they, they were influenced by it. You, you couldn't, how could everything not be influenced by Nevermind? Of course it was, you know, yeah, it was yeah. the, the songwriting, the, 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 the production and the, the delivery. And, and so I, you know, yeah, I, I just was aware of that. Some, Oh, I don't know. It's like after the album came out, Lars, um, you know, they, they did a music video for Enter Sandman. Wayne Isham did that video. Great music video. Yeah, yeah. Um, the second video off the album or say single, I guess, was The Unforgiven. Matt Mahern, another great video director, did that. As Lars said, he's like, well, let's see if we can do something with this footage. And he, in his mind, what he wanted to do was, first of all, they didn't want to do another concept video. Um, and I think the other thing with nothing else matters, they had to kind of be a little careful because it, you know, it's, it's almost a love song, although it never says the word love and it's, it's a ballad. And I think they wanted to dance around that fact a little bit, which they did uh, quite, quite yeah. awfully. Yeah. And I, but I think they wanted, if, you know, a concept video would almost be too much of a, of a kind of. A nod thing, to, to you know, what's going uh, on uh, lyrically. Too ballady, yeah, yeah, yeah too ballad-like. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Lars was like, if, if this footage can work. So he, you know, gave the directive to like, you know, kind of lock yourself in an edit room for a few weeks, which I did, and figure out if this footage can work. And happily it did. I mean, happily a lot of the takes that I, I filmed were actually takes that were used or, or were close enough. And I was able to like kind of lay my footage into the recorded track and it would hold. And then I just filled up the rest of the space with re these really cool moments. And I just took the, I just made it about the camaraderie of the Metallica guys and, you know, the, the people working with them to create the black album. And, and I just took these kind of fun moments and interesting moments that were happening in the studio. And you know, I kind of put them all together, kind of ran them at a little bit slower speed so that they kind of fit the, the feel of the music and it worked, you know, and I was, you know, I was very uh, happy that that worked out for them. So yeah, it, it was, you know, that's another video that just that moment kind of came together for them. And, and that song was just like the perfect place for that, that visual element to, to ride on to. Right, right. And, and you, you've worked with them a, a couple of times uh, since. I think you did uh, a feature-length documentary a year and a half in the life of Metallica as well. Yeah, right. So the video came first, Nothing Else Matters. And then, 
you know, uh, a few months after that, I think I got the call and it was like, all right, we need you to start pulling together that, that footage. It's going to, we're going to do a release. This would have been very early in the year. This was like in January or February. I remember it because it was around the time that Metallica was on the Grammy awards and they, they won the Grammy that year for the black album. And, you know, Lars, of course, thanking, <laughs> thanking Jethro Tull for not putting an album out. <laughs> which, yeah, which it had, it was the first metal album the year before, I think, because when, yes. when, when, yeah, Jethro Tull wins, wins the first uh, metal album award right. uh, from so Grammy. Lars, Ridiculousness, yeah. <laughs> take, taking a swipe, I think much more, at, not at Tull, but at, at the... No, at the, at the, 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 uh, the Grammy, at, uh, yeah, the Grammys Grammy themselves. Right. But anyway, <laughs> happily they won, and right around that time they were like, listen, we want to have a video release for the end of the year. And, and so, you know, start editing that footage. And by the way, also at the same time you're editing it, uh, come out on the road with us and film more footage because they had like a very interesting year in store for them. And uh, that year shaped up to be that, that touring year of 1992 shaped up to be, um, of course, continuing the black album tour, Yeah, going to England. This is the most amazing part for me. It personally, it's always the most amazing Thing that I'll remember is going to England for the, um, unfortunately, a few months prior, Freddie Mercury had passed away, succumbed to um, uh, HIV. Yeah. And so everybody was quite moved by that, as, of course, Freddie Mercury, an uh, oh, incredible amazing. influence. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. And, and so, you know, they, they had this thing called the Freddie Mercury uh, AIDS Awareness Concert yeah. at uh, Wembley Stadium. Yeah. Which, nope. yeah, huge, right. It was in April of 1992, Metallica asked to be on the bill, which was a big move for them. I mean, think about this thrash metal band being asked to to play on that bill with like really the the you know I mean just the 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 you know yeah, the, I, I, the, I mean, the David Bowie and stars and and, uh, and uh, sure. uh, uh, Annie Lennox uh, you know come to and mind. Robert doing Plant, sure, yeah, I, I, you know just everybody. Uh, uh, yeah. Elton, Elton John and, um, uh, and, uh, right. Axl Rose, uh, you know, just on and on that's right. and on, but yes, yeah, it's on a, and on. amazing. So it's an amazing moment. So that, so we filmed that, which was just amazing. And then we, uh, the, the year went on right after that, they announced, um, the summer tour, which, which is, was like, you know, the, 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 the fan dream, which was the, the guns Metallica tour guns and roses touring stadiums with, um, Metallica and like, you know, also let's face it, Faith No More opening. So pretty incredible lineup there yeah, for anybody yeah. who <laughs> you know, bought a ticket that to moment. that. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and that was the, you know, I mean, what some say the biggest rock tour, one of the biggest, you know, certainly it's on the level of like monsters of rock with like, you know, Van Halen or something. And, and so, um, they, they went out there and, and that also was documented. Um, and that was, you know, a hit or a miss. I mean, Metallica were a, a well-oiled machine at that point, so they they did great shows. Now, I've always said that on on a on a on a right night, Guns N' Roses was as great a rock and roll band as you could ever want to see. When when they weren't their own worst enemy, they were yeah. the, just the greatest. Seen both. And, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I was at I was at the uh, the the Stones uh, opener when they opened for the Stones uh, Steel Wheels tour and literally break up on stage and start yelling at each other. Me too. <laughs> Me too. I was at one of those shows and they and they were great. But of course, I'd seen them just prior yeah, also. Yeah, uh, around, yeah, right? we're just uh, uh, you know electric. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. As great a rock and roll band as you could want. 
and of course, even on that Guns Metallica tour, because a lot of it's remembered for the for the bad nights. But you know, on a good night, what you saw was a great show by Metallica, followed by a great show by Guns N' Roses. It was it was as great as you could ever want to see. Um, you know, there were nights that that Axel was having problems with his voice, with the monitors, with the fans, with whatever. And you know, on those nights, as I said, you know, great yeah. a great rock and roller, <laughs> but he could be his own worst enemy too. Yeah, so we all know um, that, yeah. That, right. And so that wouldn't, you know, on those nights, I mean, on any you could have a riot on some of those nights. And yeah. so um it was a very volatile uh mix and stuff, but we captured that with our cameras. And then um ultimately the unfortunate thing that that's I mean terrible, you know, was James got burned, the the, the pyro mishap in Montreal. Yeah, that's right. And uh followed by a riot in Montreal. And uh but luckily, you know, James James was able to to, you know, figure out how to come back and was not, you know, uh you know, damaged too badly. And and so God, he he returned, yeah, thankfully. And um, you know, they completed the tour and and uh, onward. By the end of the year, what came out in 1992 was a two-part documentary, A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica, part one and two. And, um, you know, amazing product. I mean, people still talk about it now. I think, you know, I tried to show process in that, how you do something. I knew metal fans would love it, but I wanted somebody to be able to watch it and and understand how you make a record. And over the years that have happened in between, I've had a lot of people come to me and say they learned how a record is done by watching that that video. They saw how you actually make something in the studio, not just guys in the studio recording. That, that's one thing, but actually how you make a record. And and you know, it's it, I've been happy and pleased that we we did that piece of work and that it, it stood the test of time. So it really nice, nice to do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then I think uh, yeah. you also worked with them uh, on the Antarctic project too, right? Yeah. Well, I've, I've been very fortunate. Um, you know, I've kept really good relations, which is very easy. They're, they're wonderful people. Uh, Metallica, not just them, the, the entire camp for a band to be that good. The, the, backing organization has to be that, that good and they've had they have great management at q prime yeah, and q on prime an individual is, yeah. level just just great people that they work with and and all along you know all these levels and so you know at various times i've been fortunate to get the call back that like hey we want to go we're doing something special and we want to film it um now they've got people with them right now that are that are you know really great i mean they film so much stuff um, I hardly touch it. Uh, I don't do anything really. And, and, you know, I, but every once in a while they, they call me up to come in and, and one such thing was, was this, uh, uh, just a, for me, the, the dream of a lifetime was to, to, to go to Antarctica yeah. with Metallica. I, 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 I mean, it's insane. I mean, the concept itself is, yeah, it's just, is like, really? Um, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. I, I have to ask, yeah. how did that come about? Yeah. It, you know, as all things with them, they, they, it just seems Metallica does things on some next level. It can't, it can't just be big. It's got to <laughs> well, be bigger. Than yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. And so in the, that year they had played, um, four continents with their, with their tour that they were doing. And, and this crazy. I mean, they get offers all the time to do crazy things. Um, and this was like, it was Coke zero wanted to do a, um, a promotion, something for South America. And the idea was to go to get a band, go to Antarctica. 
So for Metallica, it was actually like completing the whole thing. They got to like play all the continents in one year. Yeah. Um, but also to play, to be the first band to play like that in Antarctica. So they, you know, it kind of came out that it was, that they were going. Um, that was one of the few times I ever rang up management and it was like, hey, if, <laughs> if there's one more place happen. on that yeah. ship. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually asked, I didn't beg, but I did ask. <laughs> and I was like, can I do it? And, and the, the comeback on that was, you can do it if you can do it alone. You can't take anybody with you. It has to be, you have to be able to make the documentary yourself. So I spent like a, like a good month, like, you know, figuring out how to, you know, make my kit be as small as possible. Cause of course the limitation yeah. was yeah. the travel mm -hmm. and how to bring as much stuff as possible with as little and I brought backup cameras. I didn't know how cold it was going to be, but I know that basically batteries and cameras and things will fail and they'll particularly fail at the bottom of the world. So bring backup. Whatever you got, you know, I've read, I happen to be an aficionado of, of reading about Antarctica. I've read all about Ernest Shackleton's amazing trips to Antarctica. Wow. I mean, of course, different era and they were trying yeah. things, but I just, if I know anything about Antarctica is that you know, shit will go wrong on the bottom of, of Expect, the world. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, if you need a battery, you're not going to get one. So figure <laughs> out what you need and, and like, be yeah. self-sufficient. Don't yeah. rely on the crew. And that's, that's also what Metallica's crew did. They, they were, they were, you need backups times three or four or five. And, I, you know, I figured it out and I, I came back with the footage. It was great being there. They did something so unusual. Um, if anybody watches that footage, they, they watched, um, Metallica, in order to preserve, everything was about preserving like pristine quality of Antarctica. I mean, they took that very seriously. Yeah, yeah. And they they played within this geodesic dome so that the noise from the amps would not, you know, uh, upset the wildlife that, that lives there. And, and so the idea was to have like a zero footprint on Antarctica, which uh, everybody worked hard to achieve. That's and so it was a very cool kind of, yeah, concept to film. And, and, um, and then the, the moment I'll always remember there is when um, they took, the, when I say they, the people on, we all lived on a boat, a exploratory boat that could house everybody, the band, the crew, and the number of fans that were taken down there. Uh, and the fans were contest winners. That's right. Uh, from, a, from Coke here. I, I remember that now. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really cool. So, um, the, the people on the boat were, they were all like research scientists. Um, and they took us in the Zodiac boats to like explore a little bit. And so I, you know, rode aboard the, the ride with Metallica and they, um, just one amazing moment. It's in the footage. Uh, anybody could see it. It's available on Metallica's website, so anybody can watch this footage. And um, we're in the Zodiac boats, and these whales uh, that were uh, humpback whales that were kind of feeding and doing that thing where they dive to the bottom. You see the tails come up. They go to the bottom. They feed on uh, kelp and other things that they eat and come back up. And they changed course, came towards us. And then surfaced like right near the boat. And by near, I mean like like ten or fifteen feet away. These Checking mammoth you. creatures. Yeah, yeah. They were curious about. They were like, "What? Well, what are these?" And but it's very striking. And uh, while it wasn't like alarming in the sense that you, you kind of had this feeling from them that they meant no harm, because surely if they did, they could they could turn the boats over in a minute. But they kind of were checking us out. But it was still very striking when these things, these enormous things, like surface right by the boat and 
the, I mean, the line after when, when, when we, when they kind of went under us and, and went a safe distance away was, you know, Lars, of course, nailed it. He goes, well, if you gotta die, you know, <laughs> I guess getting overturned by, by whales would be a bit different than the usual rock yeah, star I, death. I, that, that, we, would that we make headlines. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Whale kills. Plane crash. It's not the <laughs> yeah. Whale kills. Yeah, famous ban in Antarctic waters. <laughs> right. How often are you going to see that one? <laughs> right. I, I was more like, you know, whenever whenever I'm with them, I'm like, okay, whale kills Lars Ulrich and a bunch of other <laughs> folks, and I would have been the bunch of other folks. Yeah, yeah, no no name mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so right. so yeah, right. so you've got to work with uh, those guys uh, several times, and and that gets us to mm -hmm. this current movie, which For goes back in time to their their beginning. And I, and uh, you know, the, mm -hmm. the first thing I I, I want to say about the movie is that it's not just about Metallica, e even though you know they they, right. they are definitely the the you know that 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 ghost throughout uh that uh, just yeah. keeps on coming back because you know they, they're just you know now, now that we can look in the rearview mirror you know they, they they just became the biggest band out of this particular genre although there's some great guys that go along with them and we'll, we'll get into that so the first thing i want oh, to ask you is is that the movie starts with a Jack Kerouac quote? Uh, Here were the children of the American <laughs> Bob Knight. Why why did you choose that? Okay, um, uh, for a couple of reasons, but the the main thing is that you know I I think it, what's evident, and if you're uh, somebody from the Bay Area, you you would attest to this, especially musicologists that you mm -hmm, are, mm -hmm. is that it the, there's in a way the the Bay Area continues to produce um, scenes, you know, it's, people are like, why did it happen there? And I was like, well, certainly it has something to do with the fact that scenes continue to happen there. And so I trace the, uh, the Bay Area thrash scene right back through the music to, let's say, jazz in the Bay Area mm -hmm. and to, you know, Bay Area was was so open that it was open to like the beat poets and yep. there's a reason the city city lights bookshop yep uh, was was in Getty, the Bay right. Area mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yep and that they would defend the right of free speech there yep. and everything yep. so I think it's something to do with with that that there's continually scenes in other words there's a scene there was the the beat poets had a scene and then kind of come there was you know jazz always had a home there of various kinds and then you, you come into of course maybe the most famous scene of all is the yeah, hate Ashbury, you know the hippie scene, hate, right? hate yeah. yeah and everything that came yeah. from that yeah and, and, so, and the free speech movement at berkeley you know, just on the other bridge on the other side of the bridge it's exactly at the it, same that, time. it would happen yeah. there so so you know now you come down to this moment where in in the early 80s you know, these thrash bands could thrive. They thrived because there were supporters for the music and for the, and of the scene. A supporter could be a lot of things. It's somebody who attends the show. It's somebody who, they, you always need in any scene, you need the, the guy or gal who's drawing the flyer, who's painting the backs of jackets, who's, you know, kind of creating the art that comes out of it, making mm -hmm. banners and everything. Mm -hmm. um, it's not necessarily just musicians. And, and so, um, there was two reasons the, the the Kerouac quote was, I thought it was so accurate because basically in its heyday, um, jazz was the, the heavy metal at the time. It was the thing that parents were like, 
upset if their kid got into it and they were like, this is going to rot your brain and turn you to the devil. And, (laughs) and they would say that about early jazz. And and it's like, wow, that quote could have been picked up and applied to uh, heavy metal music in the eighties. Like uh, a parent. Well, it it was, uh, don't forget, uh, Judas priest was, uh, put on trial for, uh, you know, helping to commit a suicide. Uh, so, you know, uh, yeah, which there's always some backlash, uh, you know, John Lennon famously with his Jesus quote and, you know, Beatles backlash there, uh, you know, even the original rock and rollers, uh, you know, because of their, uh, love of, uh, African-American music where this all comes from to begin with, uh, you know, the white establishment, uh, you know, had a freak out, uh, you know, the mods and rockers in the UK, I mean, on and on and on exactly. can go. Well, yeah, yeah, right. it is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly a thing. So I want to, so again, to, to start off as, as with Kerouac and to draw a line right through all these scenes. I mean, it's a quick, when someone sees the movie, they'll see it's just a kind of a quick run up to, to, uh, the fact that there are various kinds of scenes, but that what you had in the thrash metal people was a another generation had been had come of age so they didn't want you know i mean they were already a full generation maybe a generation and a half away from you know the hate ashbury scene and they wanted their own music and so they started hearing this music mainly coming from europe and they were they were latching onto that. What they were hearing was the new wave of British heavy metal, and you you mentioned quite rightly Judas, uh, Judas Priest, Priest yeah. and and others. And but they, you know, the, a lot of these bands didn't tour the West Coast. The West Coast was pretty far away from England, and so they they the you know the young people there just started forming their own bands, playing the, the music in a way like that, but of course changing it to their own perspective and doing it as they felt like doing it and and that that's how you get this kind of you know crucible of of everything of people and support that you need for the bands to actually be able to play and then coming into that was a bunch of bands but i i really wanted to kind of show that you had before you ever had any bands you had this moment where these folks got together and and did this and like created something was starting to happen and one of the people creating that was young Kirk Hammett. So this is before he even knows who Lars and James are. And I really wanted to go out of my way to point out that, you know, really the first of these thrash bands was Exodus. Right. Because Kirk formed that band in about 1980, uh, which is at least a couple of years prior to Lars and James getting together, maybe a year prior. Yeah. And, and so he's creating this. And you know a lot of times as it's told you know metallica because you know i mean metallica kind of the story goes that like you know it's the la story and then it comes to san francisco for a short period of time and then world domination right right exactly and i really wanted to show that like kirk was doing his own thing quite quite well Mm -hmm. before he ever knew who lars and james were and yeah and 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 that's cool. And and it's even more interesting that Lars was up there for a while before he even has Metallica going, that he's yeah. bopping around making connections, which will ultimately pay off. So they were really kind of all these folks rotating around the same kind of orbit a little bit. And, it, you know, it was almost inevitable that, that they'd, they'd get going, you know what I mean? Because there was a few people that pulled it together. Kirk told me himself, um, this, this is not in the movie, but he just told me that 
ultimately when the scene got going, there was maybe 100 or 200, a couple of hundred people that were like the core element of the scene. And that was it. And you kind of knew everybody. And, and so it was, it was important because it's, they supported each other. That was the, the key thing to come out of this was they, they really supported each other's activity. And, um, and, and I hope, you know, that's what I, at the beginning of the movie is all about. And one of the things that I'm sure you could identify, I found this, this part of the movie to be the most identifiable thing to everybody, even people who don't care about this music. It's the part where everybody is going to the record stores and looking right. for their Go music, the searching. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that was me. That was you. It no. doesn't matter where you grew up. No. I, I, was, I, I, I'm I, the same thing. I had 20 bucks and I had to decide which two albums I wanted. <laughs> I love that quote. I was like, yep, yeah. there you go. Like, yep. That was all of us, right? And, and it was also, by the way, anybody who loves something collectible, the comic book geeks yeah, were the yeah. same thing. We were all those guys yeah. looking for our comic books. So we would congregate and you'd meet like-minded people at these, at, at, at record stores or comic book stores, or a lot of times those stores are the same stores. And, and, uh, and I think that was it. And then of course the tape traders got going and they started connecting the world in a sense. Well, you know, way before the internet, they started trading tapes and talking to each other, uh, through just regular old snail mail. And so into that come these musicians who are able to create. And one of those groups of musicians was a band called Metallica. But even Metallica, when I spoke to them about doing this movie, were very adamant about they Metallica could be in the story, but it's not the Metallica story. And I was like, yes, absolutely. It's it's not their story. They were one of they may be be the most successful, but they're still just one of these many bands that created the scene in, in the Bay Area thrash scene. Yeah, and I, I think you you kind of uh, did a great job of explaining there seems to be about three waves that come with this. There's that first wave, you know, Exodus, uh, Metallica, and uh, and a few others uh, are that first wave. Uh, and, and they're inspired by, like you said, uh, the, the uh, uh, new wave of British heavy metal. Uh, you know, that includes like Diamond and, um, uh, yep. you know, Iron Diamond. Maiden. And, 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 and then, of course, uh, Michael Schenker, I think he does a show in 1980, which which kind of introduces us to Lars in the in the film, uh, sure. because uh, uh, he had a Saxon uh, T-shirt on, and uh, you know people are like, "Where the fuck did he get that?" Right? Exactly, and you know that was really it. I mean, Lars just being the the the. the character that he is this yeah. uh, you know and not let's just from say he kind of had a privileged uh, childhood uh, you know his father was a famous uh, tennis uh, coach and and Lars uh, had an aptitude for tennis and was kind of on the circuit so they got to travel a yep. lot uh, you know and uh, uh, I'll give it up he's he's Danish uh, and so is yours truly uh, and uh, oh, okay. he uh, you know uh, he, we, we've been known to be uh, pragmatists and uh, open to uh, just about any experience that, well, that's absolutely correct. I mean, I've, I've, I've met his father, Torben Ulrich, and when you, when you meet and understand his father, you start to see where, <laughs> where Lars where really comes Lars from. Comes from right? <laughs> yes. uh, no, because uh, Torben is everything. He's, he's, he's a, um, you know, he, I mean, he's a musician mm-hmm. and a tennis player and a poet and, yeah. a, and yeah. you know, a yeah. music writer. I mean, he's just everything. So you see that that Lars had no fears about pursuing his interests and was in, encouraged to do so. And so that really made a big, you know, that that's one of the pieces of the puzzle is that is that Lars had these international influences and had and could pursue them 
And, uh, and he brings that. And then when he meets up with somebody like James Hetfield, it's like you, you have, you know, the, the, the kind of combination starts to come together that you need to, to make this happen. Yeah, yeah. So, and then let's give it up to the, the 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 record stores that you do mention in the film. I think it was the Record Vault up yeah. here uh, and uh, Middle sure. Earth down in SoCal, uh, which you know yeah. would bring in some of these imports, you know, or you could order and uh, and get uh, from them. Uh, and then, like That's you said, right. the, the tape trading is hugely uh, important. Uh, and and there's it, it's these compilations. Uh, that are done, and you know, uh, there's there's another movie that uh, we we just mm-hmm. recently talked to, which is is kind of you know uh, uh, the other side of the same coin because this scene is happening at the same time, and in fact, there is some crossover both in the movies, mm-hmm. obviously in the scenes, which is the reason for the movie, and that's turn it around the story of East Bay Punk. Um, I, right. The timeline's a little different. Uh, you know, punk takes a much longer gestation period to become uh, mainstream. You know, it's not till Green Day's 1994 uh, Dookie album comes out with that. Right. Where, whereas, you know, the uh, the the thrash metal scene happens fairly quickly. I mean, it you know, probably starts about 1980. Uh, I think we've established that uh, here with Exodus. And uh, and then, uh, you know, by 84, 85, th- these guys are, are beginning to get uh, some serious attention from uh, right. fans all over the world. Right. Well, I, I've seen... Um turn it around. And, um, I thought it was, you know, it was excellent. It was excellent that somebody documented that part of the scene. It is interesting that it was happening concurrently and that some of those bands even played at the same clubs and, yeah. and or you across know, the street. Uh, there's the right. Mabuhe on one side and the Omni on the other side. And all the metalers right. played the Omni and the punkers played the Mabuhe. Right, exactly. But there's, you know, in an earlier time, the rockers play, you know, Kirk talks in, in our movie about one, one, one of the shows at Mabuhe. Yeah. And, and so, I, again, to me, it, it just gives more props to the Bay Area. The fact that that, that area is, is open and supportive enough to have not one, but two scenes going on at concurrently. At the same time, right. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 And, and, and while, while it, uh, you know, the, the, it's not like everybody got along and it was kumbaya or anything, any, anything like right. that. But the fact is, right. is that they both were stretching out into, you know, an expression uh, that, uh, you know, at the time may seem polar opposite, but as you, as you, you, as you, you, you look back, uh, after the fact, you can begin to see more similarities than, than not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, uh, you know, when I watched, um, the movie, uh, turn it around, I saw similarities, of course, all, all along the line, um, and the differences, but basically what I did see in terms of similarities is you have, um, again, the, the bands cannot exist without a group of supporters. You need people coming to your shows and, and like spreading yeah. the word, yeah. so to speak. And I saw that in both <clears throat> stories I because that's how, that's how, that's how it was able to, to rise basically. Well, and, and I, I, I think more and more importantly, uh, if I can, uh, just, uh, you know, visually, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in a second, the Slayer incident, but, um, you know, uh, in LA, 
the scene of, of which I was a part of, you know, you distinctly made yourself different from the audience. You know, your mm -hmm. dress and your look, sure. you know, was 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 to separate yourself out. And that's not the case with both the punker and the thrash scenes in the Bay Area. You couldn't tell the difference between the kids and the players, uh, you know, if they were all hanging out uh, at the same time. Uh, that is until Slayer shows up uh, for one show. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's your point is that, that uh, you know, these, these th it was much more community than, you know, uh, some sort of um, act and an audience. Correct. I mean, I, you know, I always think that the, the scene in L.A. that that sort of developed, you know, if it starts, let's say, somewhere around Motley Crue and then continues. Um, and, I, you know, I like these bands. I'm not I'm not an elitist about it or something. I think it's, a, you know, it's 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 rock music. But I think they it trace has. directly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it. it I think it, it traces more to like the 70s and rock stardom like God. Right like stardom, you right. know, of like either Zeppelin or, you know, any of the other bands that were, that were just, you know, up there where, you know, you could be an audience member, but they get up yeah. there and do yeah. that. You're and just immortal. Yeah. They're immortal. Right. Exactly. <laughs> they're rock gods and they dress the part yeah. and, and that's fine. And they, they keep that mystique and that's part of the thing. Now in what happened very clearly in, in thrash and in punk was that it was being played almost by the same level. It's like the same age, of the audience and the performer. And if not the same age, certainly they're wearing similar dress. And the idea is that they're not above, one's not above the other or beyond the other. And it's like, if you wanted to, the inspiring thing is you could get up and do that. That's the idea. If you were an audience member, you could do that. Yeah, yeah. And they did, and they did. So uh, right. so there's that first wave. And uh, uh, remind me, who is that first wave? I, you know, obviously everything stems from Exodus. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, I'm I'm not really such a musicologist as as much as some other folks, and I'm I'm I've said this a lot, and I'm going to keep saying it that I don't know who the keeper of the big four of of thrash metal is because there really should be a big five, and that should include Exodus. I don't know how you keep them out, but you know, whatever, some some somebody figure yeah, this the, out. Yeah, the big four being Metallica, Megadeth, uh, Slayer, and Anthrax. Slayer and Anthrax, right? And I think you know, I mean, right in there. Exodus's record came out, Bonded by Blood, and I just think it's it's as seminal a record as any of the other things that are came out. So, um, and as influential and everything. But you know, you sort of in in the Bay Area scene, you have a bunch of bands that sort of get going, and they they start up. Exodus is one of the main bands. Metallica comes to town, and that kind of adds fuel to the fire because they're kind of both doing the same type of thing. Not long afterward, Slayer shows up and they're doing it, but faster. And along the way, you know, you have they, they would be happy. I mean, one of my favorite quotes in the movie is Gary Holt, um, of course, of Exodus and, and, and Slayer. And, yeah. and Slayer. <laughs> he, he, he says this great thing and he goes, he goes, the Bay Area was the, the epicenter of thrash metal. And if your own area, meaning if you came from some other part of the country or, or world, was not welcoming of you, we would be. So he's saying like, if you were playing this kind of music someplace else and you couldn't, you know, nobody would listen to it and nobody would care because it was thrash music, which was pretty often. Mm -hmm. um, you came to the Bay Area, you had an audience, we welcomed you. And and so that's that's a pretty 
bold statement. So you had bands like um, there was a band and I don't really know their music well, but I know there's a band like Exciter and there would be bands from the from the East Coast and uh, all these bands from out of town. They could come play. You'd probably be. I just look at the playbill that the the flyers that exist, and it's like it's basically like Exodus playing with everybody. Exodus <laughs> yeah, was yeah. like the, the they were always the headliner, and uh, yeah, come on and open for us. Sure, no problem. Uh, yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, but that was important. So that band was able to come to town and play for a crowd, you know, and have an a crowd, adoring and, crowd. And people, yeah, as opposed yeah, and to people buy their t-shirts and yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's no fun. I I played some bills because you know, my band was decidedly not uh, mm-hmm. hair metal, but at the same time we weren't we weren't uh, thrashy. We were doing a funky yeah. kind of metal thing, and uh, you know we had to play with all those pretty boys, and you know, and it w- wasn't fun. It was you know the, the crowd was like that. That's not what we're looking for. Until we got to the sure. point where we could start headlining the whiskey and the in the Roxy and that sort of thing, and we'd have our sure. own little crew. So it's exactly the same sort of thing. Uh, but this right. was a full community in you know in a space, and so then we have to talk about. You know, like with 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 the other movie, uh, you know, and the punkers, they mm-hmm. had Gilman Street. You know, uh, the uh, the the thrash mm-hmm. metalers had Ruthies. Right. So I, you know, again, as a documentarian, you make you make a choice, right? I wanted to make a film that played around ninety minutes. I didn't want to, you know, make a longer film. I also didn't have money to make a longer film. So I mean, if Netflix wants to pay me to play, make a four-hour documentary, <laughs> I am on thrash it. scene. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, call. Here's my number. But yeah. it's like, it's it's. Um, I, I knew it should play like this. That it yeah. should be a a tight movie. It should play fast, like the music itself, right. and it should be something that's just you know that's really about this this scene. So of course there were many clubs that contributed to the thrash metal scene. We mentioned a few of them: Mubuhe Gardens on Broadway, uh, the Stone. But the one that kept in 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 the discussions, and also, uh, you know, my film comes from a book called Murder in the Front Row with yeah. all these photographs. Right. So the one that seems to have the most kind of the most kind of paths crossed through it was Ruthie's Inn, which was this great club in um, in I guess it's in Berkeley. It's certainly in the East Bay. It's in Berkeley it's in on Bur- San Pablo yeah. Avenue, yep. and it was like it seemed everybody kind of revolved around there, the most stories. And so I was just like, all right, I really have time to just spend some good time on Ruthie's. It had the most interesting story to me. The, one of the most fascinating parts of it, it was, was the guy who booked it himself. He didn't own the club, but he booked the club. And he's a man by the name of Wes Robinson. And Wes um, was African-American. He was um, a jazz aficionado and he came up listening to jazz. And one day in about 1983 or four, he books Exodus to play in there. And then he keeps booking thrash metal bands to play. And he, he had been booking like jazz and blues in there. But he books these bands and he keeps doing it, even though <laughs> it's pretty clear that they raise hell when they're in there. They like, like you know, just through much, the shit. Much more, uh, very different than a jazz audience. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> much but, more exuberant and expressive. No question. <laughs> But but I love that that this guy Wes could see in in the thrash metal that it was kind of the edge of the envelope and of of what music was was doing and that in some way it must have registered with his his understanding of jazz that that itself was the edge of an envelope on in a different way yeah and so he just was able to 
keep doing it. Now that provided a very important place for these bands to, to, you know, grow. And of course the stories coming out of Ruthie's were legendary. So we really, yeah, we gave that a lot of loving attention in the movie. And I think people have enjoyed the Ruthie's segment a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Not only the, the Ruthie's uh, bit, but also uh, the fact of Big O tires uh, next ah. door, uh, almost the polar opposite of what you, you know, of, of what you get with Ruthie's, you know, but you right. know, that, that was the place to go and hang out uh, before and after the show and, uh, you know, uh, get get your head together, if you will, uh, you will. before <laughs> before entering yeah. in uh, to the uh, the mayhem. I just loved. See, this is what was so cool about Big O Tires is that Big O Tires is, is a parking. Well, it's a it's a business. It's a tire company across the street from Ruthie's, and everybody would number one they'd park there, but they'd also kind of, as you said, get their head together. They would party a little bit before going into Ruthie's, and and the bands would be right out there in that parking lot, right along with the you know with the uh, people because the club was so packed so tight that it was it was claustrophobic in there and and, and so you couldn't kind of stay in Ruthie's all day from what I I gather mm -hmm. now here's the thing that's another point where I think people could identify from everywhere because I didn't have a big old tires but I sure know a lot of parking lots that we pulled up and <laughs> party and I have a feeling you yeah. do too Hell yeah. a lot of people yeah. remember that uh, leaving lines of 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 beer bottles, you know, lined up across the parking lot, if not broken, and, you know, just, just you know, partying and, and then just taking off. And, and, of course, everybody on the lookout for the cops when they would swing by. So I think a lot of people can identify with that. In this case, it was Big O Tires. Yeah. And then uh, out, out of Ruthie's, I think this comes out of Ruthie's. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but is this, this a really fucking cool story about the scalps? Uh, yeah, now that is in something. Fact, now I believe the movie starts off with Kirk <laughs> looking in the camera and pointing and saying, no fucking posers. No, posers must no, die. Posers must die. That's it. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I didn't put them up to it. Kirk Hammett, <laughs> just like when, when I, you know, when, when Cameras I Cameras are like, rolling. Here you go. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, we clapped slate to just, to just line up. He just said, wait a minute. But I started to pose my first question. He just, he shut me up. He was like, he had something he wanted to do. Um, so Poses Must Die is a quote that comes from the, you know, the immortal uh, Paul Bailoff. Paul Bailoff I, passed I, I, away in 2002, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Paul was, was the, the, you know, first <laughs> front man of Exodus. Um, you know, Kirk himself recruited him, found him at a party. Uh, apparently, he was the most diehard heavy metal person you could ever want, you know, lived and breathed it. And he, yeah, he, he the, was our, our very own East Bay uh, Lemmy. Yeah, he was that. He was that guy, and and with with a bit of John Belushi thrown into him in a sense, and so you know he sort of had that 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 energy and that humor, and so he he would go on these rants. I mean, his stage patter was he would go on rants about killing posers, and and he was by the way the keeper of the grail. I mean, he decided who was a poser, who wasn't, and. So the famous stories, and it's not told by one person. It's told no, by many people. Right. They have a collective memory of, yeah. of this this activity. Was if somebody came into <laughs> into Ruthie's or any place else that Paul was, and was wearing what he deemed to be a hair metal T-shirt, and that has been described. As, you know, again, this is all subjective to Paul Bailoff. It was described as rat. Um, Crew, could, Motley, Motley Crew, Motley Crew. Yeah, yeah. It could yeah. be. It could Warrant, be. Warrant, I'm sure. Warrant, that whole oh, yeah. crew. Anything, anything yeah, that, like yeah. that. A yeah. poison T-shirt. Oh, it. yeah. Well, you're probably writing your own death warrant, <laughs> and uh, and so <laughs> he he would literally 
literally cut the shirt off the kid's back, take it off, and then he would cut strips out of it. He'd tie the strips around his wrist, and he'd wear them as these war trophies. And and there's photograph. The, the, what's great is the photographic evidence in the book and in in the, all the photos of the day of Paul with all these strips lining his wrist, which <laughs> had to come from somebody's T-shirt who lost their T-shirt. And he didn't care. He would go right up to you and take that thing off. And and you know, obviously, he was such a force that I mean, nobody would challenge him on it. They just would be like, "Well, okay, it's either yeah. that or die. One of the two. Yeah. I'll, I'll take. So you better you go, have the shirt. <laughs> yeah, you better go get yourself either an Exodus shirt or you're going home with no shirt that night. So, anyway, it was pretty. It, it just kind of. I love that story because it just kind of attested to how, um, you know, how energetic and rough the scene could be. But you know what? On the other hand, I mean, now it might qualify as bullying. On the other hand. I never heard ah, rather that, it, that he. There was that no he blood involved, right? Yeah, he never really. I never heard that he beat anybody up. He intimidated people, sure, but he never. There was never a full on where he like beat somebody down. Now, I, I, as as I watched that movie, turn it around. I mean, it seemed like there was more of that violence happened in the in the scene, you know, in the in the scene in the punk scene. Uh, that oh, there I, was, I think it was uh, in, in on the punk scene, and uh, the violence there was from agitators. You know, the agitators, yeah. kind of, like the skinheads, skinheads and these kids, these kids having to defend themselves uh, more than anything else. Uh, I, and, and and you know, it, now in the L.A. punk scene, the hardcore scene, uh, yeah. yeah, the the violence was sometimes internal. Um, and, and sure, I, I remember and was a part of that as well. So, uh, but uh, but very different uh, up here. Uh, and in fact, it's it's in a, in a weird sort of way. The the East Bay punk scene is a very young scene. It's 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 you know it's it's actually gravitating towards uh, you know real teenagers uh, and things right. like that. Whereas you know the the thrash metal scene, you, you know pretty much everybody's in their twenties here. Uh, mm -hmm. So you know the other thing that we have to talk about is the fact that you know how metallic it gets out here. Uh, how metallic is really really formed in San Francisco as opposed to L.A. While James and and Lars come together in L.A. Uh, it's really Cliff Burton that, uh, you know, forces the issue and says, no, nah, I ain't going to fucking go to L.A. If you want me, you got to come up here, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's really an incredible part of the story. Um, you know, Cliff, and this, this is just well-known tale, Cliff Burton, the, the, the great bass player before Metallica, he's, he's in a band called Trauma. He's in a couple of local bands, actually. And he's from everybody's, you know, Talk, talking about it, he was clearly the standout guy. I mean, he was, you know, you just knew like, like, wow, that guy. So, you know, most times in a, in a band, you're not watching the bass player, <laughs> no. unless a singer like like Phil Lynott or somebody like that, you know, or yeah, Getty some, Lee or right, or yeah, Chris Squire. Like, so yeah, yeah, these yeah, those big giant like, names, right? Right, and in this case, you're watching the bass player, and he's not singing, and it's like, so you know, he he, you know, Lars and James scoped him out and they were like he should be in our band and i think he'd pretty much outgrown trauma and uh, and so you know he was like yeah i'll join your band but uh, i'm not i'm not moving to la and he did he was adamant about it and and they moved up to the bay area to be with him so at that point it's lars james and dave mustaine all moving up to the bay area yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah i forgot about mustaine was uh was there well, he was well, in at that, that point yeah. yeah yeah and that's one piece of it that really made it like they're there. But I think what's more telling, actually, is that they're in the Bay Area for a few months. And then comes the 
you know, whatever you want to say, the firing of Dave Mustaine. I, I didn't get into that in the movie. I was not into doing behind the music. No, I just we, all, we all know that story. And, uh, Dave Mustaine is yeah, incredible, yeah, and yeah. that's the least interesting part about no, it. And so no. all I'll say is that he, he needed to go his own way anyway. I mean, yeah. look he, oh, it's great. We have two fucking great bands instead of one. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. so, so it's, it's all good. It's all good. I, you know, I'm sure at the time it sucked. Hey, I've been fired from a band before. I know what it's like. You know, so you oh, know. But yeah. he, you know, I yeah. Look, they they made no life to leather. Uh, I I think that's the the, the tape that really sends them. Uh, you know, into uh, the ability to tour. Uh, right. And uh, and you know yeah they go on tour and and you know Dave has uh, you know has admitted his drinking was over the top and uh, uh, yeah. and it just you know it just didn't work out for that and uh, you know in New York uh, they you know things came to a head uh, you know but here here's what I think is so interesting about it is that which again just speaks volumes about the Bay Area right yeah in in if you go back into like the middle of 1982 when Metallica has recorded um, no, no Life to Leather demo, right? They're whatever, they're this L.A. band. Not even a year later, really, they, they, they see Cliff Burton, they, they recruit Cliff Burton, they move to the Bay Area. Really, within a few months, they, they let go Dave Mustaine. They hire, not anybody, but they no. hire Kirk yeah. Hammett yeah. From, from Exodus. And within, oh, really, just a short time, they are now 50% a Bay Area band. And I think that tells you as much as you need to know about the kind of musicianship and what's going on in the Bay Area right. in terms of this, you know? Right. It's amazing. They heard in Cliff, a musician that was, you know, even to this day, and unparalleled in many ways. I mean, he's unique still. And in Kirk Hammond, I mean, Jesus, as, as, as judges of talent, I mean, you got to give it to Lars and James, right? I mean, they, 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 they pull Kirk Hammond and amazing. He's still they should be, be managing. They should be managing NFL teams, right? Exactly. <laughs> They're that exactly. good. That good at yeah. judging talent. No, uh, without doubt. Uh, yeah. Without doubt. So uh, you know they do. They they come come into you know the the famous uh, Metallica mansion there in El Cerrito. Uh, that also uh, you know makes an appearance in your in your film, <laughs> and uh, and they begin to to you know grow and and the scene grows along with them because they don't. You know, they don't forget about where they come from as they are quickly climbing the ladder, right? That's exactly right. They, I mean, they, they very quickly started getting, you know, being built in, they moved, they went to Europe and spent a lot of time there because fans in Europe got what they were doing and they could tour there. And that's really where they get a lot of their chops in terms of really moving up. But, but before that happened... Uh, I wanted to say, because you were talking about the different waves of thrash metal, I think that's kind of what we're getting into. The second wave, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, is that Metallica, when they were playing in the Bay Area, and then onward, Exodus, who stayed in the Bay Area, and, you know, of course, Slayer coming to town. These bands are all having an influence on what's going on, because the people attending those shows are are quite literally, I mean, we have Rob Flynn from, from Violence and Machine Head saying... He goes to see these shows and then goes on the whole drive home. And he's like, he's like a younger kid. He's like, I can do that. Right. And Alex Skolnick, who is also attend, you know, saw early shows in clubs with, with, you know, when Cliff Burton was in Metallica, you know, is learning guitar. And within, within a, you know, couple of years, I mean, he joins Testament, which was legacy yep, at that's, the time. That's, yep. And, and so you have these waves starting up because, you know, the amazing thing is 
they're not like the idea was like somebody saw this and was like, I can do that. I can actually do that. It reminds me of, of another kind of scene that happened, which was that was an effect that the Ramones had on 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 people. Yeah. CBG There's a lot of bands that if they saw Ramones and CBs or, um, you know, Bono has talked about seeing the Ramones when they came through Ireland. They were like the Johnny Appleseed. I mean, everywhere they went, you know, they, behind them, bands formed in their wake. They went to yeah. England very famously in 1976 bands formed. And I feel like Metallica and Exodus and Slayer and a number of these other bands really had that effect. They, they, they showed, they inspired people to from, pick up a from the underground. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, similar to, uh, you know, the Velvet Underground's, uh, first album, which, uh, you know, uh, famously, uh, Brian Eno, uh, the quote, uh, you know, uh, maybe only 30,000 people ever bought that album, but every one right. of them made a band. Yeah. So, there so you go. and, and it is it, it, because it is, it's unique. It's different. Uh, it's pushing the envelope in one way or another. Uh, and, uh, that attracts, that's authentic. That's authentic, and that's yeah. really what attracts uh, artists. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, and so we get this second wave, which you mentioned, Testament. I think Death Angel, Violence Forbidden, uh, and yep. Zest are part of that. And so, who I want to talk about with that is Debbie Abono, which yeah. you know is one of those characters that you know you just don't expect. And, you know, at the time you're like, you know, really somebody's mom's into this and here, here, here you have it. Uh, that, again, this is what I found so um, un unusual and fascinating about the Bay Area scene. It's what made me want to make the film. Um, this, the, the way I made the film was you know, Brian Liu and Harold Oyman made the, the book, but I was friendlier with Brian Liu and, and he gave me the book and I just was riveted by the book. And one of the things that was so interesting, I was like, who is this obviously older woman, you know, who's around the scene? You know, I mean, it's, it's you know, she's unique in that she stands out in any photo. It's very clear from the photos that, that you know, everybody loves her. Um, you know, I got the feeling she must be somebody's mom. But I mean, it's just, you know, she's there and she's all over the place and she's being hugged by Lars and Kirk as much as by the guys in Possessed. So I come to find out this woman, Debbie Abono. Um, her, she, you know, her daughter was interested in the, in the scene and, and, um, uh, was, was dating, uh, Larry Lalonde at one point and, and who's in possessed and she got interested in the scene. Now at that point, she's a woman in her mid fifties. Um, everybody else is like 20, you know, and, and she just was described to me as like the den mother. She took care of them and she, um, I think Alex Skolnick describes it very well that she, you know, a lot of older people saw the, the youth as like they, they demonized them, especially in the 80s. It was like, you know, whatever they're up to, it's, it's bad. And, if it's, and by bad, it means like, you know, in league with the devil or at least just <laughs> bad, you know, yeah. just being, you know, Alex being crazy and out of control. And, and, and instead, she just viewed them as like a bunch of kids and she'd rather – if they're going to party after a club, come back to her house, at least it's safe, and be there. Now, that's a pretty big step for somebody. She started then managing one of the, you know, most out there bands, which is yeah, Possessed. Uh, possessed, right, right. And, yeah, and, and I think and forbidden. forbidden. And Forbidden, right, right. And, and, you know, these are really like 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 hardcore thrash bands. And and she just, you know, took them under her wing and, and just went. and. Yeah. It's really an amazing thing. So I, I, you know, I had to, you know, kind of 
get her into this and and bring that that kind of energy in. And again, I love stuff that's, you know, kind of not the thing you'd expect, but it's 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 right there in the story. Same thing with Wes Robinson is bringing in these people who supported the scene, but they're not the usual storyline you'd expect. And I think that's, again, one of the most interesting things about the film. It is. It is. So uh, I, w- I want to talk about two, uh, I think, critical uh, shows. Uh, in mm-hmm. The first being uh, Day on the Dirt. Uh, yes. Which was which in some ways was, a, 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 again, a bit of a crossover. Uh, I don't think any of the Bay Area punk bands, but I know Suicidal Tendencies was uh, was a part of yep. that. No, I take that back. I think I think there were some of those Bay Area uh, punk bands uh, on the bill as well. Yeah, the, the, this is all right, so Day on the Dirt, which was actually called Eastern Front. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Day on the Dirt was the the the, uh, the name ever, all the kids gave it. And that's kind of as a nod towards uh, Bill Graham would have these things called Day on the Green. Which is the second uh, part of my Which is we'll get to later, yeah. yeah. And so what they did was they um, – West decided he wanted to organize these kind of – these outdoor shows over multiple days. So you are correct in that he would try and have like a punk day that the punk bands would would play on and then had more of like a thrash day. But – even there, you see there's a mix. And so this day that had Sla- that saw Slayer and Exodus and um, Possessed playing also saw Suicidal playing. So it just really goes to show, you know, what, what really is the line and doesn't really matter at all because the photographs attest to everybody hanging out and being uh, fast friends. And so yeah. it just didn't, you know, it, it's, it, you know, I just think it all shows that, that music's music and energy's energy. And if it's good stuff, everybody will enjoy. Um, so here... You had these bands playing on this very important day, which kind of brought together different people and different styles. But every, you know, the accounts are everybody got along. It wasn't there was no fighting. There was it was it was like more like, hey, let's play together. So it kind of exposed people to different types of music. And, uh, you know, I think that's that's a great idea. I mean, that's kind of what 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 music should be about i i think most festivals nowadays are kind of set that way or if not you know they got multiple stages with uh you know different types of acts playing you know those different stages or you have you know the uh, if you remember the old uh, uh us us festival you know you had new wave day and you had uh, classic rock day and you had metal day right uh sort of thing so that's probably uh where 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 this all comes from and uh, right. you know, it's around the same same time uh and uh you know from that but you know you mentioned slayer and, and, and i want to dive into that a little bit uh, more because they did come up and play that show uh mm-hmm. and they you know they're an la band and they did come up with some of the uh the la accoutrements uh mm-hmm. that were there and quickly realized that all of that's ah. not important it's it's what the bay area was which is just about the music mm-hmm. well at that point, I mean, things were, um, you know, they're, really they're starting to move now. Yeah. yeah, things are moving. And there had been, you know, look, somebody, they really drew a line. The thrash metal guys and, and a lot of it in the form of Paul Bailoff, too, <laughs> yeah. were, were they, you know, they had they had certain regimental lines of, of uniform and what you could wear and what you couldn't wear. And obviously, if you were wearing the wrong shirt, you got to cut off your, your back. But, you know, wearing makeup was just out because makeup to them signified the hair metal bands of, of the, the sunset strip. It was yeah. just not, you could not be a thrash metal band and do that kind of thing to them. That was their way of looking at it. So what you have is on the very first 
Slayer album. And this is a story that was told by many people, so I felt, you know, it was, it was worthy of putting in. You know, uh, Slayer on their first album, on the back cover, they, there's pictures of them. And, and now, you got to remember, these guys, they're all 18, okay? Nobody, it's like, give everybody a break, all right? They're kids, they're young people. They're wearing, they're wearing eyeliner. It's not like makeup, like the way, the way um, Kiss would wear it or the way uh, Poison would wear it. It's, it's, it's more, you know, it's They weren't trying to look like girls. No, they were trying to look look dark and demonish, yeah, I guess, yeah, you know, and yeah. which is funny because that's become like a certain goth yeah. look. That's <laughs> yeah, they were ahead of their time. <laughs> yeah, but but at the time that was it. So they came yeah. up wearing that stuff in their first shows in the Bay Area, and um, I'll just quote, you know, Gary Holt on this one. They they wore it at their first show. It, it, uh, I forget where it was. It was somewhere in the Bay Area, but the next night was going to be the Ruthie. Stone. I think it was a stone. They it were at the stone. stone. And then they, right. yeah, Ruthie's the second night. And, and people were yelling at them to, <laughs> to take, take off the makeup. They liked the music. They really loved the music, but they were like, what do you need that makeup for? And, and the Slayer guys were a little put off. They're like, well, we don't really wear makeup, you know, because to them, makeup meant like, like what Poison yeah, was doing. Right. So, but, but in the Bay Area, it had a different meaning. So they're being told, like, take that off. So, Th that night, apparently, Gary Holt tells them, hey, you know, we're going to tomorrow night we're playing Ruthie's and that shit won't wash at Ruthie's. So you better get that <laughs> off. And, you know, I mean, you know, to his credit, I mean, Tom, Tom Mariah picks up the story and just says, hey, you know, that was the last night we wore the makeup. That was the end of it. He just, you know, it was the, that was the end. They just they knew. And I think what they came to understand was it's I don't think they they took orders from anybody. Slayer doesn't take orders from people. I think it's more like. They just were like, do, do we need this? And I guess we don't. And it's like, so they just, you know, figured out, you know, who, it's it's part of defining, figuring who you are. I mean, you know, every band goes through this to try to figure out who they are. Again, I give these guys a lot of credit. They're all young people at the time, 20 years old, maybe, you know, right. you're still figuring out who you are at that point. So, yeah. So now we have three fucking classic albums that come out around the same time you know you mentioned bonded by blood uh by uh by exodus kill them all <laughs> everybody knows that one and show yep. no mercy now these guys are really starting to you know become famous and uh you know and 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 take over the the metal scene uh it, mm -hmm. it, it still takes a few years before that happens but uh you know they're out there and uh famously we we get to uh with metallica day on the green yeah so a big you know i mean what's happening is that bands like metallica and slayer uh, and Megadeth and, you know, Anthrax, of course, too, and Exodus, they're able to play and tour. I mean, what you have is a case of, like, musicians can be musicians. Um, they don't have to have, like, a day job and then try to be musicians. They're actually they're actually honing their craft, which is important. That's um, an, an important, like, leveling up of, 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 you know, for musicianship. And a very important acknowledgement happens in the summer of 1985. Metallica is already by that point playing bigger and bigger shows in Europe, mainly. Um, they can play bigger shows in the Bay Area. And it comes to the attention and is realized by, by Bill Graham. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, Bill Graham is the great promoter of the Bay Area. Yep. Um, one of the big, you know, legendary rock promoter. And it, he started putting on these shows, which were basically gifts to the Bay Area, called Day on the Green. 
where there would be an amazing bill with actually different kinds of bands on it. Um, and they would always be in like, uh, like Oakland or stadium or o Oakland Coliseum. Yeah, the Oakland Coliseum. Yeah. Yeah. So they were big shows, summer shows. And of course, since he was Bill Graham, he could book the biggest acts there were. So, I mean, there were huge headliners. I mean, you know, it, it would be the biggest acts of the day with a bunch of smaller bands, but it was always an amazing thing. So people would go to the show. You would turn up at the, at the, at the, arena at, uh, not the arena the stadium at you know uh, 11 o'clock in the morning and you'd see amazing stuff from like noon onward um all the bay area musicians attend this kirk hammett as a youngster attended these shows and it meant a big deal i think that's when he first got a look at ufo was at one of those shows and uh everybody talks about them so it's a big deal when in 1985 metallica is asked to be on the bill of this show now, the headliner that day was Scorpions, and then there's a few other bands below that. Rat was one of the bands that day. Um, but Metallica was, I think, second or third on the bill. They were early. It was still daylight when they were playing. But it was a huge acknowledgement that this band was up and coming and that they meant something. And, of course, two of the players in the band, Kirk and, and Cliff, are from the Bay Area. So they're literally looking out at this sea of people but seeing – friends there and and they had of course been people in the audience of day on the green so for them it was a huge moment for them personally but also for thrash metal uh brian lou puts it very well in the film he said the fact that metallica was playing day on the green it was like all of us were playing day on the green yeah it was we all and had they killed it they killed and they it crushed then. it yeah and yeah. luckily and I'll, i want to add this luckily for history There'd be no record of it were it not for MTV News. It's not even the, the, the regular division. News had their camera. They had one camera there. And, they, I, and new, typically News is allowed to shoot three songs of anybody's set, and then you're, you have to shut down your cameras. Same thing with photographers. They, they let yeah. them shoot three songs, and they clear out the pit, and, and then, then they're, they're not allowed to be there anymore. So thankfully for history, that camera on that date was located on Cliff Burton's side of the stage. Mm -hmm. And when Cliff played this, I mean, anything, but particularly when he was playing the intro of For Whom the Bell Tolls, the camera was right there on him. And it's probably the best recorded, you know, and filmed version uh, that we have of Cliff Burton uh, playing anything, but of course that song. And it's, you know, it's all over the internet. It's everywhere. And it's, it's a legendary piece of footage. And it really, if anything demonstrates, uh, Cliff's unique ability, it's, it's that moment in time. So thankfully on that day, that camera was located there. Yeah. I, I personally think that that's their worldwide coming out party is, uh, them on day on the green that will always be remembered as that moment, uh, where, you know, they, they, they start the crossover outside of a small, um, uh, scene mm -hmm. into be the, into, you know, let's just face it world domination. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, who knows where it would go from there? I mean, they yeah. were still only on their second album. Master of Puppets yeah. had not yet come out. And, and, it, and it's amazing. But, I mean, if you look at the first two albums, Kill Them All and Ride the Lightning, I mean, just each one, that progression forward, you know, oh. uh, relentlessly and powerfully. Yeah. So uh, just an amazing, yeah, I mean, Metallica yeah. is just, you know, amazing stuff going on there. Yeah. I love uh, the story. Uh, it, it may be my favorite story in the movie of uh, mm. uh, them uh, at the show and, uh, of course, tearing, the, tearing the, uh, the dressing room up and then getting called on the carpet uh, the next yeah. day by Bill Graham himself. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a uh, 
story a lot of people had heard a little about, but you know, we, we told it really nicely. I mean, getting Hetfield to tell it himself. And then, uh, Tony Isabella, who is a, um, uh, she worked for Bill Graham presents for yeah, many years, years booking them and, and was a real, uh, booster of the thrash metal bands. Not, she managed Exodus for a while. So not just, not just of Metallica. I mean, I'm talking about somebody who like really contributed. And again, I, I really wanted, made an effort to get, um, the, the, uh, female perspective in here and show, uh, how important all these ladies were to the scene. And Tony Isabella, you know, just like Debbie Bono. The story is is a bit of legend at this point, where you know Metallica played Dan the Green, and then following that did, you know what they normally would do, which was kind of you know get pretty drunk and cut loose, and and they happened to wreck the trailer that they the backstage trailer that they were in, um, but Bill Graham being being the guy he was, I mean he was known for being booking great stuff, but he was he was a hardcore dude. I mean he oh. survived the the Holocaust. He'd yes. gotten out of out of Europe and stuff. So yeah. he was no pushover. This was a tough man who could like who, you know, stood for no no nonsense in, in his backstage. And he viewed it as his home. The backstage was his home. And mm-hmm. you know, that's how that's how he, he was. And and he treated the bands very well, by the way. He 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 was known for for taking care of them and, and he wouldn't tolerate any of this. Oh, so w- without Bill Graham, we wouldn't have the backstage experience that you, you, you get with as an artist, uh, we, you know, before Bill Graham, it was, you know, it was dirty, nasty, oh. uh, uh, you know, barely able to find a seat mm-hmm. without cockroaches on it or something like that. And Bill turned it into, as you said, perfectly a home. Right. And he did that. Now he came up doing that during the, the, you know, uh, Janis Joplin, Jefferson Airplane yeah. era, but yeah, it, he was still that way in the '80s, and and uh, and and he did an amazing thing. So anyway, they tear up the place, and you know, Bill Bill demanded respect. You don't res- disrespect this man, and and you know, he had a lot of clout. I mean, he booked the shows of the Bay Area. So I mean, if you went against him, you know, you did so at your own peril. You you find yourself not getting booked. So I mean, you really had to res- respect what he did but if you respected him he liked you you you're fine yeah so anyway yeah the famous story is he he called he wanted somebody from the band that happened to turn out to be james hatfield he he had them he didn't just ask for them to get on the phone i mean he wanted somebody to come down and make a formal apology in person for destroying that that back room and understand kind of what they did and you know it's it's a funny moment i mean James, as we all know, has has been through his trials and tribulations yes. and come through sobriety. And 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 I think, you know, at that point, he was not there yet. And he was still many years away from that. But, you know, I think he respected this stern father figure that that um, Bill Graham was. I mean, he didn't go in there and curse him out. You know, James, James went in there and apologized and kind of admitted to being kind of an idiot about it. And, 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 and I think what you ended with was the two guys with mutual respect for each other, because according to Tony, um, afterward, you know, Bill really respected James and always asked, asked for him, you know, how's he doing? And, and, uh, you know, and James of course returned in 1991, they played day on the green again, except that time they were the headliners. Right. So it's really an amazing progression there. Yeah. Now your film kind of ends with uh, it's almost like two endings, um, you know, uh, and 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 I think it's a good place uh, for for the film to 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 come to a close um, because it's about the scene, and mm-hmm. that scene does kind of 
begin to fade away around the same time that we lose Cliff Burton in uh, in 1986. Mm-hmm. I think it was January 1986. So um, not just a few uh, months after that day. So September, September 86, oh, actually. September. Oh, okay. uh, yes. Um, oh, anyway, I'm sorry. I'm right. sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, my notes. It's it's Ray Burton, uh, Cliff's father, who just recently passed. He just yes, he passed away in January of this year. That's correct. Yes, wonderful man. Wonderful yeah. man. Yeah, who does make an appearance in the film as well? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but your film does end with the uh, the death of of Cliff Burton, which is kind of mm-hmm. you know the beginning of the fading of of the scene itself. Even though mm-hmm. you know some of these guys continue to you know like we've said several times go on for world domination. Right. Well, you know, I, here's what I, I knew. Before I ever shot any film, I sat and I laid the story out with Brian and Harold. And I pretty much realized I had a super rich tale of, of, of you know, this musical movement and cultural movement, really. And that by, between the starting of Exodus and around 1980, and I knew I wanted to tell that story about everybody looking for records and everything, so I had to have time for that. To the death of Cliff Burton in 1986, I already had a movie. I just had a movie. You know, I had, I yeah. had 90 minutes of, of stuff. And so I was like, I didn't want to overstay my welcome. And I just thought, look, that really is it. I, don't, I didn't want to really say that the scene ended, but certainly a moment in the scene. It, it's, it's absolutely a, a milestone. Is the, the death of Cliff was, was such a powerful moment felt by so many uh one of the people said they they were all so young they hadn't lost anybody yet and so it was it was really quite powerful and i just thought like that's that's as much story as i can tell um i i would encourage anybody to pick up the torch and make a film about a, a testament or death angel they're, they're, those are great stories and should be told yeah um i just didn't have room in my thing to tell it, but those are, those are great stories that almost were, were starting as Cliff was, was, uh, I mean, overlap a little bit, but you know, kind of Cliff was, was at the end of his life and those stories were just really beginning their run. So I think it's, it's an amazing, um, kind of time to like bring it up to. And yes, we were very fortunate to have the participation of, um, of Cliff's father, Ray, yeah. who, uh, you know, passed away at, uh, the old age of much older age of, I think 94, he was this year. And, uh, but you know, what was beautiful about it was he carried the torch for his son for so long. And, and just, you know, I, I always feel like he could have just kind of, you know, closed up shop, you know, just, just retired away and, and not really talked to anybody about it. And instead he, ter- he chose to like kind of open up his world and give everybody, um, I never knew Cliff Burton. I never saw him play, but I feel like I knew a bit of him because I was able to meet and talk to Ray Burton. And he gave that gift to so many people. He, 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 you know, he was totally open and he would go to events, he would go to Metallica shows, but he'd also go to like record store events and all kinds of stuff. And, and, and also, you know, uh, things for, um, uh, music events where, where they would have like Cliff's bass or something. And he would always be there. So people could kind of have a feeling of, of being in touch with Cliff. Um, that, that takes a lot of strength and humility. And, and, uh, uh, Ray was a beautiful man for doing that. Yeah. It was really great. So of course, yes, he spoke beautifully in our movie and, uh, very touched by that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but the real ending is that this, this music, 
persists. It's still out yeah. there. And, uh, you know, you spend, uh, uh, the, you know, the end of it with uh, Metal Allegiance, which is kind of, you know, a Bay Area super group. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, you know, I found out about them. And what I saw was Metal Allegiance is a, is a super group. It's put together by a guy named Mark Menge. He's actually a New York guy. He's, he's kind of on my side. But he he was young. He wasn't there for the thrash metal scene or anything. He's too young for that. But he was inspired mainly by Cliff Burton, uh, but, you know, certainly by all the others to pick up a bass, form bands, and ultimately form this band where he's playing with his heroes, these thrash metal giants like Gary Holt and Alex Skolnick, David Ellison, um, you know, so many other players because they all kind of, kind of it's, it's a loose conglomeration. They all kind of come in and out. Chuck Billy uh, sings for them, Mark Asugeda. So a lot of them are Bay Area originals, but, um, you know, also from other places. I don't want to just keep it to Bay Area. And I said, man, isn't this just a perfect expression of this Bay Area feeling? Because the Bay Area just, thrash scene wasn't just Bay Area people, as, as Gary Holt pointed yeah, out. Yeah, they it's, came in. You could come from anywhere. Yeah. And as long as you were kind of playing it and feeling it right, you were, you were welcome. So it was like, I, I just thought that was really expressed in, in um, what Metal Allegiance was doing. And I thought that's a great way to kind of bring it into the, the now because that they're a current group. And so, you know, I did so. And I think that's that was kind of a, a cool way to, you know, kind of show what's, you know, that this music's still alive. But really what shows you it's still alive is that most of these groups, I mean, I know that tour, nobody's touring right now, but they will be. But these bands are still current and alive. I mean, I want to I want to get this note in that. I mean, Testament just this month in April released a new record mm -hmm. called Titans of Creation. And it's great. And it's great just like their other thrash records. You know, it's it's a real, you know, just another piece of the thrash puzzle. Uh, in just last year, we have we have uh, Death Angel getting nominated for a Grammy. Right. And if they didn't win, it doesn't really matter because the album Humanicide is a great thrash album and they're still putting on great thrash shows. So it's, you know, that to me really tells the story of what, what this music is. People still want to hear it and they still want to play it. And that, that we'll get back to that someday. That'll be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fun movie and uh, very educational and uh, you know, a love letter to uh, those times and those people. Um, and so uh, I, I got to ask, how did you choose Brian Posen to uh, narrate uh, this thing? You know, most famously now uh, remembered for playing Burt Kibler on The Big Bang. <laughs> well, yeah, he, I, I mean, he's he's very talented and has done a lot of things. He's yeah. he's a, a great comedian, of yeah. course. You know, actor. You know, uh, right? He writes comic books and books, and he's amazing. So Brian Posen. Um, came about it was actually a very easy and natural choice um if anybody knows brian Posehn's comedy they know he's an enormous fan of of you know thrash music yeah. and he comes by it quite naturally being a uh, uh guy from north of the bay area he saw many original bay area shows and um talks about it in his act um my wife uh, rochelle uh, ben lulu dubin who is a producer of the film she also books comedians and as you pointed out i've done a lot of work a very time with various times with comedians um i've met brian on a few occasions we're not like friends or something but we've met but she uh you know put the uh the request out to him if he would be the narrator and uh he was the only person we asked and it was a natural because i wanted somebody who was the you know i could have gotten like a voice of god narrator but i, I rather 
have a a voice, an authentic Bay Area voice. Mm. And and Brian's that voice. Brian could easily have been an interview in the film because he was at so many shows. He was at the Day on the Green show with Metallica. Yeah. Um, a lot of shows. But instead, he he really became an authentic voice for the narrator. And so I, I, I'm, I'm very uh, grateful that he, he is the narrator and he's, he loves the movie. He's been a great supporter of ours, yes. So what's, uh, what's next for you, uh, Adam? What's the next project? Um, well, bringing this out has been, you know, the kind of a, a, the end of a four-year yeah. journey. Um, I just want to uh, mention some stuff about where people can get it, and, and uh, then I'll figure out what's, what's, what's next is always, I don't know, there's always other, other film ideas that I'm, I'm working on and everything. It's, you know, I always feel like I'll try to tell stories that are, that are, music related because i just i i just enjoy it you know i i think i i love music so much i'm a uh very uh i'm just like an okay musician i mean i can play guitar a bit you know when i stand next to these guys who are so great i'm like i can't even play this instrument at all you know as i i sit and watch alex skolnick i'm just like wow you know just wow and and uh but you know i i i always want to do things with music and bring combined film with music um murder in the front row will be available on i don't know when this will run but it's available on april 24th mm -hmm. ev everywhere it's going to be uh, uh, available on streaming uh rental streaming and also purchase and in 4k and it looks gorgeous in 4k i think mm -hmm. itunes is showing it in 4k so if you buy it there um, it'll also be in 2K, which is, you know, whatever. It also looks looks great. But uh, um, it's going to be on, you know, I know Amazon is going to have it for sale um, and uh, Google Play and, uh, let's see, Vimeo. And then, of course, there's the DVD. And so I'll just talk for a second about that. Um, I could just tell, Christian, you come from the old school of where you used to buy an album, <laughs> an actual record album, and you'd stare yes. at it. Oh, and yeah. you knew every corner and crevice yep. of that album. <clears throat> every and, word in the liner notes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, I, you know, I, I also remember those days. I can, I can actually, if I look at certain albums, I could still smell the vinyl. Mm. The, 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 the memory comes back to me. Yeah. And, and so um, we made a beautiful collector's edition kind of because it's a limited edition of the DVD. Now, I was told by my, by my distributor that DVDs don't sell that much. And <laughs> da, da, da. Okay, great. We made a beautiful DVD and in pre-order, we were, we were forced to make more because it was like pre-orders went over the top. So the DVD is like it opens in a gatefold. It's got a beautiful cover, which is our poster with, with um, uh, Cliff Burton on it thrashing. And... You open it, it opens in a gatefold. I'm just trying to describe what somebody can't see at the moment. If you go on our website, you can see pictures of it. And you open it up, and inside there's two mini posters in there. And if you open them up, there's two-sided. One is uh, by a, a great artist of like kind of metal and rock and all this stuff called Dirty Donnie. He's pretty well known. He does a lot of surf rock kind of look. And uh, he did this image for us. And then there's, of course, our two posters, which are one is the, the Cliff Burton poster. And the other side is a version of that. But it was done by Mark DeVito, who's one of the people we interview in the film. And he's an original Bay Area artist who did um, the backs of jackets and banners and flyers and all that kind of stuff. And then we also have a Murder in the Front Row sticker. And that's 
that's my own personal touch because I remember when I bought my copy of Rock and Roll Over by Kiss, it had amazing stickers in it. So, yeah, I do. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Was a sticker? Yeah. Yeah. So that's my touch for that. My my, you know, kind of throwback to that. It's got Cir- great pictures. Circular, sig- circular yes, stickers. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. memory has not faded as much as I thought. That's right. You didn't do as much damage as folks did. <laughs> right. So, so it's that. So it's really a great collectible piece, and I have a theory about that, which uh-huh. is this: yeah, that you know, I love downloads. I'm not. I'm not like a luddite. I mean, I, 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 my 4K download is going to look beautiful. Yeah. But if you meet your favorite rock star, they cannot sign your download, oh, but they can right. sign <laughs> your copy of Murder in the Front Row or your album that you once had or whatever. I love physical product and so i think that's a really nice thing that, well, that I, I expect my 4k dvd signed by adam dubin sent uh-huh. to me when we're done here i'll get you one <laughs> it's not a 4k the dvd is not 4k it's, oh it's, it's 2k okay cool. but you'll have to get the download for that yeah. but but the the product is beautiful and i yeah. think people i think you know people that enjoy that kind of thing and collecting that they will enjoy that so that's a nice touch Adam Dubin, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs in Rock today. You bet. It's really been fun. Thank you. I, I, I love you. really know your music, and, and it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Let's hear it for Adam Dubin. Please make a point of watching Murder in the Front Row, the San Francisco Bay Area thrash metal scene, now out on Amazon, Google Play, and Vimeo. Or, even better, do yourself a big favor and purchase the DVD with all the extras. Uh, If you need help, go to MITFR.com to get what you need. MITFR, MurderInTheFrontRow.com, right? So that was uh, the first of two Deeper Dig shows on the Bay Area music scene in the late 1970s and into the 1980s. Next week, we will have Corbett Redford in to discuss the Bay Area punk scene uh, with his movie, Turn It Around, the story of East Bay punk. Interestingly, each film does sort of have the same overall effects as the music of their subjects. Uh, Murder in the Front Row is tight and a buzzsaw of metal, while Turn It Up is uh, longer and more of a walk through the times. Also, um, the thrash scene, which began in 1980 and was gaining mainstream acceptance by the end of that decade, uh, punk, on the other hand, uh, actually begins earlier, 
uh, some point to, you know, CBGBs uh, of the mid-1970s, but it never sees any mainstream acceptance until the mid-1990s. And hey, you can even go back to the MC5 or the Stooges of the late 60s. So the gestation period of punk may be the longest in all of music it was underground for decades before you know finally you know green day uh, obviously with dookie uh, started to make it big they're the most obvious uh, band out of that uh, out of that punk genre uh, regardless, uh, they are both, uh, you know, thrash and punk now seen as important steps in the evolution of rock and roll. And I believe they actually have much more in common than not now that we have decades uh, to look back on. Um, you know, it's pretty obvious if you watch both films. Like I said at the top, there are several faces that appear in both films. Yeah, you know, I'm glad we got to discuss these two important musical genres that both arise out of the eclectic geography of the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, if you want to know more, uh, check out our Rock and Roll Archaeology episode uh, 16, East of Eden, when we invoke Bay Area professor Carl Sauer, the founder of Cultural Geography, to discuss the uniqueness of the Bay Area and why it is fitting that so many musical uh, styles were invented here and uh, invented several times uh, in the history of, of rock and roll. Okay, go watch Murder in the Front Row uh, for extra credit. Uh, catch, turn it up before next week's discussion. In the meantime, stay safe. And if you need some spicy bedroom equipment, go to adamandeve.com and use the checkout code D-I-G-S Digs for a ton of free stuff. Ciao, and uh, as always, keep up the rockin'. by Christian Swain. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Sound designed by Busy Signal Studios. Engineered by Jerry Danielson, Christy O'Donnell, and Leslie Barker. Find all of our shows, notes, and social links at PantheonPodcast.com. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found used in this podcast for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 